1: And I've been on a ketogenic diet for three years. When I started, I was very sick with complications from type 2 diabetes. Within six months of starting a ketogenic diet, all of my biomarkers of disease had disappeared. I've also lost about 80 pounds, and I've completely turned my health around. And this
0: show is a document of my progress through ketosis and Richard's experience thriving for years in ketosis. Oh, yep. Yup. And hopefully that might help a few people who are curious about this kind of dietary hacking.
1: Yeah, we're not doctors. We don't want to give anyone any medical advice, but we are keen to share our own experiences. We're actually both software developers, so we're not afraid of a little technical detail, are we, Carl? Not on your life. We have done some (laughs) research into our own deranged metabolisms and the science behind them. We hope to share some of that research. Where possible, we intend to put links in the show notes to cite research supporting any claims that we make. You'll probably work out pretty quickly that we're both foodies. Oh, yeah. We love
0: to cook and we love to eat. Mm -hmm. In every episode, we both share a keto recipe that cannot be ignored. Ignore it? I dare ya. I dare ya. So let's start podcast number 72, Bad Science with Nick Mailer. So, Richard, do we have any apologies or corrections from last week?
1: Um, last week was uh, the salt show with uh, Dr. James DiNicolatano, mm-hmm. and uh, I think he got everything just about right.
0: There was nothing we could disprove, anyway. But uh,
1: <laughs> exactly, uh, yeah,
0: it was what an what an awesome show. Yeah, yeah, great yeah guy. and uh, very very surprising science. I've been diving into it myself this
1: week. But uh, le- before we get into that, let's revisit mm. what a ketogenic diet is. Sure, it's 20 grams or less of carbohydrate a day. Now, we're going to get those carbohydrates from leafy greens, from eggs, uh, from nuts. Right. We're just not going to eat any sugar or starch. And as far as protein goes, we're going to limit our protein to between 1 and 1.5 grams per kilogram of lean body mass. If you're not sure what your lean body mass is, roughly three quarters of most people's body weight is uh, lean mass. So, um, so work it out that way. And, uh, as far as energy goes, we're going to get all of our energy from fat. <laughs> yeah. yeah uh so yeah that's it all of our calories are going to come from fat uh we're going to burn fat either from our body uh which could be uh what was the term an ancient crispy cream <laughs> yeah that's right it, we'll leave it at that <laughs> or uh fat on your plate right yeah well how was your week buddy yeah, my week was pretty good, actually. Uh, I went to Sydney to get a visa because apparently the US consulate in Canberra, which is the capital of Australia, which is where I live, uh, the US consulate in Canberra doesn't. Handle visas for normal people, oh. only for politicians. So, if you're a normal person, you have to go either to Sydney or Melbourne. So, I flew to Sydney and uh, to apply for mm-hmm. a visa, you have to do it in person, obviously. Um, and uh, while I was there, I caught up with a bunch of ketoers in nice. the northern suburbs of Sydney. And uh, yeah, it was so they had a regular meetup, um, and they're going to meet once probably once a month uh, in Sydney and have a regular uh, social meetup where everybody brings a plate of something keto. And uh, so at the meeting we had, it was hosted by Julie and her husband, it was actually set up in our okay. ketogenic forums, and uh, we had uh, Lyndon, his family, were there. Uh, we had uh, Chris was there, and mm-hmm. uh, Julie, and myself, of course, both turned up, and uh, we had a couple of a couple of other people uh, drop by. Um, so yeah, it was a great event. We mm. uh, there was a lot of lamb and a lot of ABTs, which uh, an American tradition with jalapenos and sausages and. Yeah, atomic (laughs) buffalo turds, I think they call them. (laughs) But basically jalapenos wrapped in uh, bacon and smoked with, uh, uh, stuffed with cream cheese were delicious. Um, and, uh, lots of chicken and, uh, I think we had one keto dessert. It was a Mm. a strawberry cheesecake. It was delicious. But it was a wonderful night. a splendid time, indeed. Uh, so, yeah, so that was my week. How was yours, Carl?
0: My week was pretty good. I, um, well, it, was, it had its ups and downs, but let's just say I went to Oslo, Norway, for a conference.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, uh, I, you know, it, if you're choosing to eat ketogenic and not fast... As you do. It's very difficult um, overseas, especially because there's just not a lot of fat. There's not enough of it. And so what ends nah. up happening is you eat more protein and you get hungrier mm-hmm. and are more tend to yeah it's slippery just, starches. just not good so and and I couldn't really well I guess I could have fasted if I wanted to be a jerk but there was just a lot of social time and it yeah. makes people uncomfortable so yeah it's one of those no win situations I did the best I could and uh very happy to be back home yeah and uh,
1: getting ready to do another fast Well, the national dish in Scandinavia is a smorgasbord, which is literally a sandwich table. The best meal of the day
0: is breakfast. It's a breakfast buffet, Mm.
1: and I can have bacon and eggs
0: and salmon and cream cheese. Yeah, Mm, it's wonderful. The only problem is it's early in the day. And that isn't really compatible with the way I eat anymore. So Right.
1: No, and all, all the social events in the afternoon and evening, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So the ultimate thing would be is if I could have had that breakfast buffet at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. But it just doesn't work that way. They close at 10.
1: There's something civilized about an all-day breakfast, isn't there? Yeah,
0: yeah, very much, very much. But I'm, I'm back in the swing. I ordered a whole bunch of more uh, bagels from Fox Hill. Kitchens and uh, already I'm nice. I'm I'm back on a, a salmon and cream cheese like smoked salmon and cream cheese bagel kick with capers and uh, bacon and eggs. Just fun, fun, fun. Getting prepared to do another fast.
1: Yeah, well, you know I'm going to yeah. be there in I like uh, 14 days um, to to help get ready for Keto Fest. So I'm looking forward to trying some of those bagels when I get there because yes, I can't yes, get here yes. obviously.
0: Right. Well, before we get to that other section that we do where we both scream our brains out and read some communications, we're going
1: to give away a two- – <laughs> You're trying really hard not to yeah, say it, aren't you? Yeah.
0: <laughs> we're going to give away a Two Keto Dudes coffee mug to one lucky member of the Two Keto Dudes fan club. Nice. And uh, if you don't know what that is, go to fanclub.twoketo.com. Just answer a couple of questions and uh, join the fan club. Mm-hmm. And this week's winner is Ethan R. Burke.
1: Well done, Ethan. Yes.
0: You get a mug with our mugs on it. Nice. Just for being awesome and for being a member of the fan club. All right. You know what that means? (laughs) Yeah, I feel good now that we've given away stuff and we get to that part we call... Mail! All right, so I'm going to go first. This was a... Message left in our ketogenic forums uh, as a comment on my post where I introduced the show last week. And right. you may not know this listener, but every time we publish a show, I post in the ketogenic forums in the resources to Keto Dudes podcast topic mm-hmm. that we have a show and what the title is and a link to it and all of that stuff. So Nathaniel says about last week's show of the salt fix. Mm-hmm. I happened to have heard this podcast yesterday, just as I was getting ready to start a new extended fast. I went to the grocery store and got the best I could find, a shaker of pink Himalayan salt for five bucks, and poured some right on my tongue. That first time got me almost to the point of nausea. But once that passed, I scaled back to smaller doses throughout the day and used it as I felt the need. I have to say, I have never felt that good on day one of a fast. Wow. And on day two, it's starting off strong. Seriously. Wow. This is one of your best episodes ever. That's awesome. Very awesome, Nathaniel. And, of course, we can't take credit for it. Megan Ramos was the one who clued
1: me into that, uh, who will also be speaking KetoFest, by the way. She will. She will. And the Himalayan salt, uh, Dr. Ni- James De Nicolatano uh, mentioned that the best salts were ones from old seabeds. And right. Himalayan salt, by definition, is an old seabed that's been pushed up uh, <laughs> into right. the Himalayan ranges. So, yeah, perfect. Yeah. Excellent. So, who you got, Richard? So mine is from Kim. Kim's one of our moderators on the ketogenic forums, and she has her own Facebook group, and she actually posted uh, in a couple of places. Uh, she says, so, you know that article from the American Heart Association that said, don't eat coconut oil, use vegetable oil, right. and everybody was freaking out about that? Yeah. It looks like the soybean growers recently promised the uh, American Heart Association half a million dollars. What? No, that's not sketchy at all. What? And I, I found, I found the press release. This is from Bayer. They say uh, this is dated March second, twenty seventeen, and we'll put the link in the show notes. And Bayer mm-hmm. says uh, that Bayer and Liberty Link Soybeans helps. Protect Hearts in America's Heartland. That's the title of this press release. Mm. And they say, in an effort to support heart health and improve the wellness of rural Americans nationwide, Bayer is proud to announce its support of the American Heart Association, the effort which runs through 2017 supports the AHA's Healthy for Good movement to inspire all Americans to live healthier lives and create lasting change by taking small, simple steps today to create difference for generations to come. Mm Mm-hmm. Here's the quid pro quo. For every bag of Liberty Link soybean seeds sold for the 2017 season, Bay will contribute five cents to the AHA's Healthy for Good Movement for a total maximum donation of half a million dollars. Ouch. In addition to monetary donations to... Support to support the cause, Bayer will help raise heart health awareness across America through educational activities targeted to growers in rural communities. Mm. So you see how this works. Bayer makes uh, fertilisers and um, and seed and- Soybean uh, seed. For, for soy, soybean seed. What do you make out of soybean seed? Soybean oil. Soybean oil. <laughs> and who is the big competitor to soybean oil? Coconut oil. Mm. <laughs> well, it's mm-hmm. one of them. So, uh, so this is, uh, it's clearly a quid pro quo. Um, so that I, f- wow. I found that to be very interesting. Right out there in the open. No shame. Mm, no shame at all. Hmm. We should actually go through the science one day about, uh, all of the great benefits of, uh, coconut oil and why, uh, this, uh, article by the American Heart Association, uh, is, uh, full of it. But, uh, today is not that day. Nope, sure isn't.
0: Okay, let's bring on our esteemed guest today, Nick Mailer. Yeah. After obtaining a degree from the University of Leeds in English and Philosophy, Nick co-authored the first book in the UK on the education possibilities of the internet. He co-founded the Positive Internet Company, UK's premier open-source managed services organization, and he also founded the Campaign for Unmetered Telecommunications and has spoken at conferences on the nexus of culture, technology, and semiotics. Since 2010, he has adopted a paleo-ish, low-carb, high-fat lifestyle to which he nevertheless applies a multidisciplinary skepticism. He lives in London with his wife, daughter, and cat. And Nick presented Chemophobia, Appeal to Nature and Paleo-Puritanism at AHS in 2016. And uh, welcome, Nick. AHS. Yeah, that's the Ancestral
2: Health Symposium. It's where a bunch of nutrition and paleo uh, geeks get together and have a good old argument about what cavemen used to get up to and whether we should still be getting up to the same Um yeah. And there are some good people there, like uh, I know people you've had on the podcast before, like Amber O'Hearn. Oh, yes. I, I met her there, yeah. and we, we, we actually recorded a little podcast there with some others about whether vegetables were necessary or, in fact, evil. And that was a fun introduction to the sort of arguments you can have at AHS.
0: I, I love your skepticism. Even mm-hmm. in this, especially in this business, because there does seem to be a lot of BS and sometimes it just hits you, you know, some things you really want to believe, but then sometimes it hits you like when people say, you know, when the people speak for cavemen, right? Because yes. we were, ba- we were alive back then. We know what cavemen did, right? But we try to figure it out and we say, you know, cavemen could only eat fruit once a year. And I think mm-hmm. to myself, yeah, but what if you lived in the rainforest? Well, it, it,
2: that's a, that, that's a really good point. And somebody, I think it might have been Thomas Kuhn himself, who wrote The Structure of Scientific Revolution, said, two scientists who witness the same phenomenon and are steeped in two radically different theories will see two different things. And an example of that is to do with your anecdote about cavemen. At the first Ancestral Health Symposium that I went to, which was in 2013, um, They had a talk by S. Boyd Eaton and Melvin Connor, who are kind of the fathers of the the paleo diet theory and and analyzing what paleontologists did. And this is important. They started their research in kind of the 80s, and that was when the next of the research was. And lo and behold, what did they discover? They discovered that paleo man ate lean meat. Low sodium yeah. diets with lots of polyunsaturated fats and exercise, did a lot of aerobic exercise. What a surprise that that's <laughs> what they happen to see in their study figures. And I, yeah. and, and I, again, it's not because they're idiots, or because they were trying to suck up to the milieu of the time. It's just that it's really difficult to escape from the psychological and social pressures that form us and actually change our whole, I'm going to use a pretentious term here, the whole Weltanschauung, which is what we use in literary critical studies, the the whole way we see the world, the whole way we perceive the world, the whole way we see ethics in the world, everything. And Science tries really hard to pretend that it's completely divorced from all of that, and it can be completely objective. And of course, one thing that you do when you go to study philosophy at universities, you realize, uh uh-uh, are we're, we're still a bunch of monkeys who are very prone to all sorts of biases. And I'll give you one more reason why I think I've got that skepticism, and I, it kind of dawned on me. Um, as I mentioned before, we were chatting before the podcast, my family originally came from South Africa, and we came to the UK when I was quite young. The reason we came to the UK is that my dad, either because he was uh, very naive or very noble, uh, supported a lot of trials that the then apartheid government didn't want him to do, like he was help ANC treason trialists, he even worked with Mandela and so on. So wow. you can imagine our family was not the most popular, and my mm-hmm. mother would receive phone calls, literally, you know, threatening her children, saying when they are conscripted, they're going to be on the Angolan army, and bang, we'll make sure of that. So we said, wow. okay, it's time to go to the UK. So when you've been brought up with A whole society telling you that something like apartheid is literally God ordained and it's the way of the world and science says that it's true. And then you know from your family and you know from your own experience that that not only do you know that's not true, but you know that the world is going to prove it's not true, Yeah. then I think when anybody else tells you something like that and tries to give you an eminence-based reasoning saying, well, 90% of all scientists say this, and uh, Kellogg's have put a research paper out that says this, and the AHA says this, so shut your mouth. At that point, you say, come on, you guys, um, I've seen this sort of bullying before, and Just because you're eminent doesn't mean you're right. And you learn that lesson very early on when you've basically been on the other side of of an apartheid government it's the appeal to authority fallacy isn't it it is it's appeal to authority uh but it's it's it almost goes beyond that because it then brings in other things like you know you get ad hominem yeah you, and you get the no true scotsman fallacy, fallacy as well which is where you say just eat real food and you say but what about that that's a real food and that does me bad oh no we decided that that's not actually real food under our definition <laughs> right we uh,
0: redefine right. things
2: Exactly, and of course, the real problem is there are some people who say certainly obesity and even diabetes has its cause in a newfound slothfulness and greed. Yes, uh, yeah, the moral, moral failings. The morals <laughs> I mentioned comes in, and then you get people who become puritanical and ascetic about things and say, you know, you need to punish yourself better. Right, uh, and, uh, right, <laughs> and you sometimes see this on even on the ketogenic forums, and it's something that I find really sad. People are looking for reasons not to allow themselves to experience the sweet flavor, say using erythritol or something. Yeah, there's almost a desperation to find something wrong with it because the way that the world works, karma. You shouldn't be allowed to have a treat without there being some karmic repercussion. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I, I want to be able to say, look cut all that appeal to nature stuff out cut the karma cut stuff out cut the guilt out do the research if if you are persuaded that this particular ingredient whether you call it a chemical or a frankenfood or what I don't care what you call it if you're persuaded that that's not going to have bad metabolic effects on you then enjoy it don't be guilty because if you're guilty, then eventually you're going to allow that guilt to take you over. You'll binge on the real stuff and right. you'll just say, well, I, I'm a weak person. I couldn't cope anyway. I'm all for trying to give people the best aesthetic um, experiences they can have. And to be fair, I think that's kind of what some diabetologists do, but they screw it up because they say, we don't want diabetics to have to give up eating bread. We don't want diabetics to have to give up having their sugary treats. When they go to a birthday party, I I read a book, a kid's book for type one diabetics saying, you don't have to give up having a slice of birthday cake, just cover it up with (laughs) insulin. So you have a a kind of a a metastasized, well, uh, well thought out thing over there, that kind of gets cancerous, combined with Pfizer that likes to sell more um, insulin, mm. combined with the feeling that, well, you can't have fatty stuff because that'll give you a heart attack, so you might as well have sweet stuff, so let's just cover it up. Right. Uh, it would be yeah. a bit like my wife's got a peanut allergy, um, the way that diabetics are treated would be a bit like saying, you shouldn't have to give up peanut butter. Why don't you just go around uh, with an EpiPen and inject yourself every time <laughs> you enjoy your treat? Yeah. Which, of course, mm. when you put it like that, sounds crazy. So but that's exactly ridiculous. what we're doing, isn't it? It's exactly yeah. what
0: we do. Hey, you know, speaking of the ketogenic forums, you answered um, a message in there, and, and I'd like you to bring that back to the show and tell everybody about it. But So, I guess, Richard, that means that Nick is going to do a little segment on... so
2: nick you want to read that question sure it was titled meat bad for you cancer risk and ian robbo says on various places i see vegans etc claim meat is actually bad for us and the cancer risk We know some studies show a, quote, link between processed meat and cancer, but of course, let's ignore the side orders of carbs. However, I've never seen any actual real science on this. Richard, Carl, maybe this could be a section of the show to debunk this, but I suspect there is no science that shows this, and I would love to be able to debunk with some actual science that disproves it. Nice. Well, that's set up right for
0: you, I think. There you go. Meatball.
2: (laughs) I, and basically, what I, I pointed out is that when you actually look into the so-called science that proves, mm. that they like to think proves that red meat in particular is a cancer problem, I point out that there isn't actually any evidence beyond some quite badly abused epidemiology. Um, in other words, there is this association and so on between meat eating and cancer. But of course, then they find out that meat eaters also happen to generally smoke more, do less exercise. We've talked about all this before, but Mm. sometimes they say things like, oh, well, we've corrected for it. And when a mathematician says they've corrected for it, they mean they've tried their best to even out the playing fields. But that's really tough to do. And in some places it's actually impossible to do. And I'll give you an example of why that's the case. Let's assume that we want to separate out meat as a variable completely. Right. So we look and we find out people who eat very little meat. Well, we'll find a lot of vegetarians and so on, people who've given up meat because they had health problems and they're trying to get better. Or they believe that they uh, should not eat meat because they're healthy. So they don't smoke. They don't drink as much. They do a lot more exercise. And the healthy actor effect that we well know. Um, because of the propaganda that said that v- vegetarianism is the way to go with that, it comes along for the ride. But then you say, okay, who eats a lot of meat? And, of course, we find out that most of the time people who eat a lot of meat are people who haven't been listening to the
1: so-called healthy advice. Or have ignored it intentionally. Yes. Mm.
2: But what we're really looking for is amidst all of those, what proportion of people in an epidemiological study would be, say, like Amber Ahern? somebody who Mm. really cares about her Mm -hmm. health, Mm -hmm. who doesn't smoke, who drinks moderately? Mm. Who exercises and only eats meat? How big right. do you think that co- that retrospective cohort would be right. within current society? It's insignificant. A handful.
0: Mm. Yeah. yeah. Very very uh, low. Exactly. I've never met anyone quite like Amber. Actually, no. Exactly. Who has? <laughs> so,
2: so if we were examining that cohort with epidemiology, we say right. Let's see what happens with cancer. And we suddenly look and we find. find let's say we find five or ten people. You know and yeah. of those let's say two of them happen to get cancer one of which is completely genetic and the other which is they happen to work in an asbestos factory or something you know just to use a sure um at that point you say oh right well they have a that cohort has a 20% cancer rate just yeah. because of mm. because of fluke sod's law because when the retrospective cohort is so small you can't really say anything significant about them right. so There's no correcting. So when they say, oh, well, we've corrected for age and we've corrected for exercise and we've corrected for smoking, the question is, okay, how many people are you comparing who do the SAD diet or are vegetarians and healthy with people who only eat meat and are healthy? And at that point… I challenge you to get a coherent answer. And, uh, mm. and, that, and that's why this, even with the best will in the world, if you're doing retrospective analyses, it can't work because the people we're interested in, people who are healthy and eating meat-based or ketogenic-based diets, there's there's almost nobody there.
0: Nick, yeah. I think um, for me, the more telling science and the more persuasive science has to do with those that show non-correlation versus those that show correlation because as we know correlation does not equal causation so in your case you know the correlation between people who eat meat and develop cancer while there may be a correlation as you're saying the people that eat meat also probably smoke and also probably don't treat themselves well and don't exercise and yada yada yeah so so you really can't say it was the meat that caused the cancer. But if you can find a study where uh, a bunch of non-meat eaters also get cancer, then you can show that there's non-correlation between eating meat and cancer, at least in that study.
2: Uh, And usually, yeah, that works very well. And one of the ways that that works well is uh, actually Western society, red meat consumption went down just as cancer rates went up. Yeah. So now there is a small little, um, exception to what you just said in that if something was massively knocking down the cancer rates in society or bringing them up anyway, then it's possible that even though there's a kind of crossover, yeah. uh, red meat could have still been causing cancer, but something else was pushing it down or pushing it in another direction so right. quickly that we lost the signal. But yeah. you're right. And, 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 and Karl Popper famously invented the black swan and said well, the, the job of science is not to verify things, it's to falsify things. Exactly. It's, it's almost impossible to verify things. You'd have to look at the totality of all existence to prove something is true. To prove something's <laughs> false, you need to find one clear exception.
0: What comes to mind is that study about cholesterol that uh, was done across hospitals in the United States, and I think there's 138,000 people that were admitted to hospitals with heart attacks, and they measured their cholesterol, and the mean cholesterol was like 105 or something. It was low. And, and that tells you that there is no correlation, at least with those uh, patients, between high cholesterol and heart attacks. Um, you know, I, I guess you could say non-correlation equals non-causation, But even that is probably a little bit of a, well, you know, it's probably 80% of of true.
2: Some people try to then say, oh, well, the reason their cholesterol dropped was because of the crisis their body was having during the heart attack. Right. But Mm. people have actually looked at data and said, well, okay, let's look for when we can find data on people who had their cholesterol tested five years before, 10 years before. Yeah. And they find that actually, no, people with, it's people with generally low cholesterol. And the really fascinating thing, and this, this tallies again and again, people with very low cholesterol tend to be far more susceptible to both cancer right. and, um, and succumbing to infectious diseases in hospitals, especially when they're elderly. So, some people said, well, it's just that the cancer is somehow pushing cholesterol levels down, or the infection is pushing cholesterol levels down. But again, they said, okay, let's check that theory. And they go back five, ten years. No, no, no. The low cholesterol tracks uh, the end result way before it, there should be any causal effect on the cholesterol. So that's a, a very interesting theory. And, and, you know, we talk about old people and the, the advice they give. And my grandmother is, is 96 years old, and her GP still wants to put her on a statin for her cholesterol Incredible. levels. I'm, I'm almost certain that had she been put on a statin 5, 10 years ago, she wouldn't be alive now because she's had a number of infections, which I suspect she would have succumbed to. Um, But of course, they don't look at the totality of that data because they've got the very simple messages that are given to them in the very simple language that's given to them that affects a physician just as much as it affects anybody else. Uh, statins, cholesterol, artery clogging, saturated fat, the mood music, the metaphors that flow past us every day, red meat, red like the devil, red like carnality. It's it's and that's kind of what I do because, you know, I get a degree in English and philosophy. What am I going to do with my life? Well, one of the things <laughs> I can do other than being a burger flipper is I can be really tuned to how language is manipulated. And how we can fall into certain linguistic traps.
1: I, I, this is uh, neuro-linguistic programming, right?
2: Not quite, no, because I think that can, that, that descends far too quickly into pseudoscientific nonsense. Okay. Uh, like, oh, he, always oh, he's, he's, touched the, he's touched his nose and then said the word boo. That means that right. he, uh, <laughs> you know, no, that none of yeah. that nonsense. That there is an interesting word in uh, literary criticism and in critical thinking theory that's called problematization. And that is, you're constantly, and believe me, it exists. Uh, it, and what that means is you take something that's taken for granted. That's one of those phrases like artery clogging saturated fat that just seems to flow a little bit too easily. Right.
1: It's almost one word without any uh, spaces in between, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, right. It's a given.
2: Heart healthy whole grains. Another uh, one. Yeah. <laughs> and, and whether, whether it's in a novel, Or whether it's something by Pfizer or a press release of AHA, you take the text, as it's called, and you problematize Mm -hmm. it. That is, you force yourself not to take it for granted. You force yourself to look at it anew. You force yourself to consider who's saying this, why are they saying this, why are they using these words, what are the implications of the metaphor they're using, who benefits from this phrasing, and who's harmed by it. And when you start doing that, some very interesting things start happening. The notion mm-hmm. of um, red meat as problematic goes back far further than the American Health Association. Really? You go and do some reading about the Puritans and the ascetics in the 19th century and before who discussed how the Garden of Eden was a vegan paradise. Right. And red Green. meat… Red meat is the product of our fall, you know, of the fall, of original sin. It's kind of, we started eating meat after the fall, after Noah's flood and all that kind of and thing. And
0: red also means stop, right? I mean, that's the universal color of stop. Red means stop. Red means danger. Uh, green mm. means
2: go. Green means things are okay. Your leafy greens versus your red meat. And yeah. it sounds trite, but actually the more you look into it and the more you look at the connections between carnality and, um, and then of course you say, well, it's of the flesh, you know, fleshly pleasures. Right. Devil in a red dress. And, yeah, precisely. <laughs> and you get back to basically, we're scared of mortality. And when you look at an animal's carcass and you eat an animal, you remember that one day an animal may well eat you. Right. And that's right. something we don't like to deal with. Some of us um, opt out of that by saying, Okay, can I kind of opt out of the second law of thermodynamics by only eating vegetables <laughs> and mm-hmm. being a vegan? Um if I promise not to, to to eat a cow, will the worms not not eat me?
0: Yeah. Uh, sorry. Mm-hmm.
2: You're going to have to find another universe.
0: Well, there's some magic thinking going on there, isn't there?
2: I think there is, and even if it's not explicit, that disgust and distaste that people have is associated with very old notions of asceticism. Um, and those old notions, actually, then there was a perfect storm in the late 19th, early 20th century when agriculture boomed, the railroads boomed, and we were able to take things like corn, dry it, press it, put it in boxes, and ship it at vast margins to all across the globe. Right. It helped that Dr. Kellogg was also a- an obsessive who believed that eating this stuff would stop onanism. You know, uh, it would e- cornflakes were a cure for masturbation. And yeah, masturbation was uh, the evil of the Obsessive is
0: world. a nice word to say, kook. Indeed. Yeah.
2: And, and so, you know, it's again, obsessions of the flesh, whether it's your own flesh or whether it's an animal's flesh, you know, the whole thing. Let's keep away from flesh as much as we can. Let's eat dry corn. Let's cool down all those passions. And then we'll be better.
1: I think his co-religionists in Australia also pretty much run the whole whole grain industry here because Sanitarium is wholly owned by the Seventh Day Adventist Church which uh John K- Harvey Kellogg was a member of and uh, in fact there were I think there were multiple Kellogg brothers each of them had their own sanitariums yes. that would treat people and it was all, it was all uh, quite puritanical. And, uh, uh, as you say, you know, they, they had, they were trying to cure masturbation with, 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 uh, boring pappy food. Yes. They had a uh, doctor administrated masturbation as well uh, as one of their, uh, techniques. It was just really rather Desire. creepy. I mean, yeah. It, it, yeah, if you want to envy. know
2: what, you know, the world that cornflakes came from, there were, As well as cornflakes in his sanitarium, he actually had these metal devices with spikes on so that if at night things happened, they, you would, you would immediately be harmed. So, you you know, nocturnal priapism. Yeah. makers. It's very weird to think this is the world where all this thinking has come from, where this wholesome, the idea of breakfast has come from that, but it did. And the thing is, if it has just been a bunch of kooks, as you said,
0: Uh, Mm. technical term
2: (laughs) that wouldn't have been enough what it was was a bunch of kooks with a strong idea that tapped into some deep religious misgivings about the fleshly that perfect Mm. storm merged with an emerging economic model
0: it also aligned really well with our history as uh, you know in in the western civilization and the religions that came along with it the judeo christian tradition sort of came out of the greeks uh, yes. uh the hellenistic society which was which was emphasizing the mind and the the intellect and the the conquering of nature by man you know given dominion over all the animals and plants etc and you know man was supposed to be you know be able to overcome anything with the power of the mind exactly and you know therefore we have this assumption that we can think our way out of problems that the body isn't smart enough to deal with, and that therein lies all of what Western medicine is based in, whereas in the East, you know, the the idea is that life happens to you, and you should participate in it and be a member of it uh, and, and respond to it rather than try to change it, steer it, dominate it.
2: To a degree, also De- Descartes is to blame with his mind-body uh, <laughs> right. dualism. But, but we we won't we won't we won't go down that that rabbit hole. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. Sorry for opening up that philosophical bugaboo right there. But we could talk for hours, and we we don't have hours. But I'll tell you another really. Interesting- if you go back to look at Genesis, I talk about mm. uh, the basis. Look at the story of Cain and Abel. Um, that is really interesting, and it kind of is almost a metaphor for the destruction of the hunter-gatherer society yeah by the agriculture society you know uh abel was uh was a hunter that that offered uh burnt offerings was meat to to god right uh cain then comes along with his wheat or corn or whatever uh god isn't that interested and then of course very first murder uh Cain kills his brother. Cain kills his hunter-gatherer brother, effectively. And, of course, that story, uh, you know, if you read some sociological analyses of it, it's redolent with what was happening at that time. There was a, a book, uh, uh, a talk that John Durant gave called Moses the Microbiologist, which was about how a lot of our ideas that we've got about religious purity and so on uh, – you know, the kosher laws and so forth all came out of when we moved from being hunter-gatherers into kind of towns and cities and we became farmers and we had to change the way we operated uh, in order not to catch diseases and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, you could dig really deep here, but the, usually we don't dig too deep. And so we just allow this to flow over us. And so when we hear something is natural, then we assume it's better without kind of thinking, well, what do we mean by it's natural. Are we separated from nature in the kind of Greek way, or are we actually a part of nature? In which case, it's irrelevant to say whether something is natural or isn't, because everything is natural, and we therefore, we just should talk about what's the metabolic benefits? Is it going to make us live a longer and more healthful life? If it is, do we care that it's quote real or quote natural?
1: Yeah, I think one of the few things that I would actually put in the category of unnatural is stereoisomers that life on Earth chose not to produce from the get-go. So, for Mm. example, uh, we make uh, right-handed beta-hydroxybutyrate and our uh germline has been making that for about 3 billion years. Yes. And we've been making it and we've been using it and we're very comfortable with it and all of our processes use it. But there is actually another stereoisomer of beta-hydroxybutyrate, um, which is a, a, basically um, uh, L-beta-hydroxybutyrate, which when we make uh, ketones in the lab, we make both kinds and we ship out both kinds. And if you go and buy lab-created beta-hydroxybutyrate, there's a very good chance you're getting both kinds. Well, one kind we're used to dealing with, and the other kind is entirely, and I would use this word at risk of provoking you and calling it unnatural because it is the other stereoisomer. And it's a little bit like Tetris, the L shape in Tetris. You know, if you have a slot for an L shape and you get the wrong, the, the, the mirror-imaged L, it's extremely frustrating because it won't fit in to that slot
2: exactly and i think maybe the only one thing i would say is maybe rather than calling it unnatural i would call it unprecedented Mm -hmm. or unusual uh because of course it's still a product of nature it just happens that it's unprecedented now some unprecedented things that we find are lifesavers uh antibiotics for example were unprecedented in nature but thank heavens for them and it's a pity we Mm. use them so much that we can't use them anymore so even then it's all natural so let's just start let's avoid the word natural altogether and let's talk about what we mean we mean we're introducing something that we can't metabolize right okay or we're not sure that how we're going to metabolize at which point then what you do is you say well we need to do some studies to see what exactly happens to this stuff when it goes through us is it going to act in the same way is it going to act in a way that's deleterious or will it do some really interesting and useful things and at the end of my AHS talk, I I, I talked about some uh, philosophers in the nineteen thirties called the logical positivists. And right. what they what they said was they looked at science and they looked at the scientific method and they had a bit of envy about it, and they said they'd love to apply that to pretty much everything in the world if they could. <laughs> so a few of them came up with this they were called the verificationists, and they came up with a verificationist creed, which was, quote, the meaning of a statement is the method of its verification. And I quite like okay. that. Not be- There are lots of problems with that statement in that it falls under its own trap, but mm-hmm. it is quite good. So if somebody says uh, whole grains are really good for your arteries, I would mm-hmm. say I don't understand what that means. The meaning of a statement is the method of its verification. So can you tell me how you verified that statement? So you said we looked at 50,000 people and we found out that those that tended to eat more whole grains had uh, fewer cases of atherosclerosis, at right. which point the, the, at which point you say, okay, I can see why you said that. And with respect, I disagree with your conclusions, uh, for mm. obvious reasons that we've discussed earlier. Um, and what, what I do quite like is they say anything that cannot be probed with this statement, the meaning of a statement is a method of its verification. They right. call it poetry. Or metaphysical nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I quite like that. So when they say you must eat that because it's natural. Okay. Metaphysical
0: nonsense. <laughs> What's the meaning of that statement? Well, anthrax is natural too, but I wouldn't touch it with a 10 foot. Exactly. Ball.
2: So what you're really saying is you must eat it because we are used to eating that. And when we eat it, we see good effects in our metabolism and our blood sugar g- is lower uh, and uh, we have yeah. le- a better insulin response now we're talking
0: now that and that's yeah. all packed into the word natural
2: exactly and same with processed you know that's uh, it's so easy to say oh all processed foods are bad no what's the process that we're talking yeah. about is it removing toxins you know so you know i could go on and i shan't mm.
0: <laughs> well nick <laughs> i really want to get to the practicality of bad science and and in particular for our listeners being able to spot bad science. When, when somebody sends a study like this latest one that we were talking about, about coconut oil being, you know, causing all sorts of heart problems like that. When you look at the study, are there telltale signs that should send up warning flags? And I, I'm, I'm linking in the show notes to uh, Chris Masterjohn uh, podcast where he basically says how to read a paper, a scientific paper, in, you know, to determine... Uh, whether it ha- it smells of bogosity or not. Uh, what do you say? Well, again, I mean, I, I come back to
2: the good old uh, Vienna circle, the 1930s verificationists. The meaning of a statement is the method of its verification. So you tell me that coconut oil, the statement is, coconut oil is just as dangerous as butter, or more dangerous than butter. Okay? You need to verify what you mean by that. So, you've done some experiments that prove that butter is dangerous because of what? And then you've done some more experiments to prove that coconut oil is even more dangerous. How? Mm. Uh, Read through the paper and look for the answers to that verificationist question. Does it reveal the experiments that we're talking about? Does it reveal the lab data does it reveal some conclusive metabolic pathway that shows how some real world data across multiple populations is validated? Or is it that they cherry pick three or four studies that were conducted in a particularly shoddy way a long time ago to prove their point based on the sort of trashy epidemiology that we were talking about earlier, and then do a bit of math torture on it? If it's the latter, I dare say it's good old-fashioned metaphysical nonsense. Well,
0: how can right? you tell if it's the latter, though? I guess that's what I'm saying is, how far do you down the rabbit hole do you go if you're not used to, you know, these, these data sets that people hash over and over again?
2: I think what you do is you, you, the very least you do is you look and you see what are the studies that they're referencing? What sort of studies are they referencing? If they're referencing good quality human clinical trials, then the stench is a lot less. You say, okay, that's interesting. They're talking about effects on humans where they've only analyzed one variable. If they're talking about animal trials where they're only looking at one variable, okay, there are problems. And sometimes yep. animals are, 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 they don't even tell you what they fed the animal and so on. So right. it gets a Yeah, that's the
0: classic one. We fed yeah. a low carb or a low fat diet, but they don't tell you what that means. Some people could define low carb as, uh, 200 grams of carbohydrates a day yeah
2: they they fed a, uh, they fed a mouse a high fat diet and you look and 95 of that fat is corn oil yeah
1: right i think one of the ways that you can actually tell bad science is you can look at an authority and you can ask them the question not only do you think this is study is correct or not. But you can also ask them, why do you think it is incorrect or why do you think it is correct? And then follow their reasoning. So rather than appealing to an authority like going on the internet and asking say two keto dudes, what do you think of this study? Rather than Having us tell you either it's good or it's bad, uh, ask us, okay, what is it about that study that, um, that, that, that leads you to believe that? What's the, the, right. the method behind your, your reasoning to, to, to determine that? And this, in this case, the, this, um, uh, American Heart Association study, which is basically comparing coconut oil to butter is basically, it, saying well coconut oil has more saturated fat and then they do a whole bunch of hand waving about the fact that saturated fat is bad for you and the conclusion is uh, more heart disease and yes. those things don't necessarily follow because we have uh, we have great randomized control s- trials that were so good at disproving that hypothesis that they were buried for 50 years exactly yeah. so the black
2: swan has been flapping around all over the place um these people are just ignoring <laughs> it and 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 You're right, Uh, another very simple way of detecting the stench is this. Even people who haven't spent very long in the ketogenic world, I I suspect most of the people in the ketogenic forums would know that the saturated fat within coconut oil Mm -hmm. is quite different from the longer-chain saturated fats that you get, say, in cocoa butter or in tallow or whatever. So the very fat that they are confusing is that the word or trying to confound to Conflite. quite, yeah conflating that's the word that's i knew was it was a con it certainly <laughs> is all a con um <laughs> or, or it's conflating these two very different chemical substances which are actually treated very differently in the body as you well know yeah. the medium chain uh, triglycerides are processed immediately by the liver mm. and so forth uh, help to produce ketones and so on the very fact that they're conflating saying oh well he has a very simple thing to say that's got x percentage of saturated fat, which is one thing, and that's got yep. x plus ten percent saturated fat, which is one thing, as if mm-hmm. they're both the same thing. The right. very fact they've done that you don't need to know anything more about the science to begin to start saying, "Hold on a minute, are you saying they're exactly the same thing even on your own terms? right? And they'll have yeah. identical <laughs> metabolic effects. Nobody has to be a nutritional scientist to know that you just have to know, look, I know that coconut oil is different to cocoa butter, is Mm. different. Do you know how I know that? I know it by looking in the cupboard. It's quite hot in London today. The cocoa butter is still solid. The coconut oil is liquid. I already know there's some difference there, and they're telling me there's no difference.
1: Yeah. The other thing that they conflate uh, when talking about saturated fat is circulating saturated fat and dietary saturated fat. And they, they did this with cholesterol too. They, they said, well, high cholesterol is a bad thing. Therefore eating cholesterol is a bad thing. Right. Um, and with the saturated fat, they say high saturated fat in the blood is a bad thing, which it appears that it is. But mm. eating eating saturated fat. If you're on a ketogenic diet, you burn saturated fat preferentially, so you have a very low amount of that in your blood.
2: But again, that that's a kind of almost a kind of magical thinking again, where it's yes, it, it, it the metaphor's be. taking off because you say if you notice even in on paleo websites today, eat lean meat. Lean's a really good word, and oh, you, everybody yeah. wants to be lean, don't you? Yeah. So if yeah. you eat lean meat, you'll be lean meat. Exactly. If you eat fat you'll be fat. If you swallow fat, there'll be fat in your blood that will clog you up
0: That's just like down the drain. You get all these things. I think there's an obvious reason why people conflate these things, which is um, sugar is water soluble. And so, we know that when we eat sugar, the sugar goes into our blood because our blood is water-based. And we can see that happening, right? It goes into the bloodstream.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: we think that fat does the same thing, but we forget that fat is in is, water don't mix. That's hmm. why we need lipoproteins to carry fats around our bloodstream. We need these boats that are water soluble, Exactly. Right? And so people don't. Oh well, how do the lipoproteins get in there, right? Or do we just? Does the fat just automatically jump into a boat and <laughs> get on there? No, no. There's actually a complex process, and, exactly. and so we don't understand that process and think it works exactly like sugar, uh, but it doesn't.
2: And and also, the the real problem with that is, okay, it's very well that a layperson doesn't understand that. But I can tell you from experience that doctors don't understand that either. And I'll give you a personal example of that. A, uh, I, I got a fasting blood test once. And the doctor mm-hmm. looked and I had low fasting triglycerides and said, oh, yeah, you obviously don't eat, eat a lot of fat. Are you a vegetarian? Uh. <laughs> Because to this doctor, eat fat equals triglycerides in the blood. Yeah. And I didn't say to the doctor, oh, dear, doctor, um, you know, an hour after you've eaten all the chylomicrons have taken the dietary fat from my gut and have dealt with it. Yeah. That's yeah. not going to be dietary fat there. It's produced by the liver with regard to uh, o- uh, over-, over energy source, usually from fructose or something like that. And I
0: learned about that from Dave Feldman. Exactly. Glucose, of course, yeah. The
2: doctor doesn't, you know, and this is a, this is a GP, somebody who's been, who understands metabolism or thinks he does. But even there, the simple metaphors beguile you. Mm. And the same thing happened the other day. Uh, there was a big press release here about how uh, there was a new um immunization, a new vaccine against cholesterol. The new right. wow. TKCS9 vaccine, they called it. The reason they call it a vaccine is quite clever. Mm. It forces us to produce certain antibodies, and those antibodies happen to destroy parts of our liver that produce uh, enzymes that uh, affect LDL receptors.
0: Oh, what could happen? (laughs) (laughs) That that couldn't possibly be bad, could it?
2: No, no. (laughs) So, of course, it doesn't sound very good when you say we're giving something that's forcing an autoimmune disease on you, which is literally what it's doing. That's what it's doing. Right. But if you call it a vaccine... Then, of course, if you're opposed to it, guess what you are? Right, an anti-vaxxer. So you can see how it's all to do with the language, and I didn't, Darn well, waste my time studying this stuff when I should have been uh, studying computer science. That's, <laughs> that's what my sorry. jobs ended up being. <laughs> it is funny how so many of us, you know, we do philosophy, we do computer science, we do English, uh, we do engineering like Ivor mm-hmm. Cummings, and we're all coming together from our different realms and saying we need to kick some sense into some of these scientists.
1: Yeah, pretty much everybody who's who's making a difference in, in the ketogenic world is, has some kind of engineering discipline. Um, you know, yes. d- Dr. Richard Bernstein used to be. Engineer before he, I think at forty he went back to medical school. Ted mm-hmm. Nayman was an engineer before he went to medical medical school. There's a, there's lots of computer programmers that have uh, twigged to this stuff. So you know it's it's all about understanding systemic. Um, uh, applications and, and really that's what we do for a living is build we build large, large scale systems that have mm. control mechanisms and, and, and the body does behave very similar to that.
2: Yes. And as part of my day job, I do a lot of uh, programming and systems administration as well. And mm. the thing is, a computer cannot be beguiled into behaving properly with a p- pretty metaphor. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't get the logic right, you're screwed. And I think we are therefore trained to start looking Cut, cutting the crap in all sorts of other realms to get to yes. the core of the program, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, we're looking for good algorithms. Exactly. And we, and we, we know a bad algorithm when
1: we see one. A code smell.
0: Well, yeah, code smell. Well, we've taken up 45 minutes of the show with this amazing interview. And I got a feeling that we could just go on and on and on and on. There's a few points that I wanted to even go further down, but in the interest of time, we, we won't.
2: But too many rabbit holes, yeah. too many rabbit well, holes.
0: You're going to have to come back, I think is what I'm saying. Very happy to do it. We're going to see you at Keto Fest, right?
2: I am going to uh, see you at Keto Fest, and uh, I hope that we can uh, share a beer, a, a no-calorie beer. Uh, mm. Sorry, no-calorie. You see, I've even fallen down there. A no-carb beer yeah. uh, at Keto Fest. You need to bring <laughs> some of those with you.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I still have two in my fridge, so. Nice. Yeah. Keep one, yeah. Well, thank you very much for having me, guys. It's been a genuine privilege. Thanks for being here, Nick. You know, one thing we didn't bring up with uh, Nick was that um Bayer thing that you you, yeah. well, you brought it up re- a little bit, but we didn't really talk about it all that much. But how blatantly obvious was that? I know, right in your face, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, terrible. Well, I'd like oh, well. to have Nick back a couple of times uh, in the next year just to yeah, check Yeah, on in. a regular basis. Yeah, it's he's great.
1: So I know that, uh, Nick Mailer and Amber Hearn and a couple of other people are keen to do, to have a salon at Keto Fest, which is basically where they just sit in a room and just chat about stuff. Uh, and we're working on organizing something like that. Great uh, idea. To, yeah. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if it'll be in a local pub or it might be at Caraman Jacotti's house or, but we will organize to have uh, an event sometime Sunday, Sunday evening after the, the regular Keto Fest uh, events have all finished.
0: Sounds great. You know the Washington Street Coffee House is a pretty good venue to hold about twenty people who just want to get together, have a cup of coffee, and talk. But I think it closes early, and especially on Sundays, so that okay. might not be a good. Well, we'll we'll find a place. Yeah, yeah we will. Are you hungry, buddy? Oh yeah! <laughs> it must be time for recipes. <laughs>
1: What you ah. got, Mike?
0: Well, I'm going to go first. This is uh Carl's Cream of Mushroom Soup. Mm. I have some in my fridge. I made it for an appetizer last night. Of course, I'm the only one in the house who eats it, so.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Kelly doesn't eat mushrooms, I take it.
0: No, none of the other people in my house like fungus, nor the things that go in it, like onions and things, but... um So, essentially, you start with mushrooms, big surprise, chop them up, about three (laughs) cups chopped, Mm -hmm. so you might get a couple of packages at the store of mushrooms. Sure. Chop them all up, Mm -hmm. and crush four cloves of garlic, and chop up a shallot. Yep, or a shallot if you're in Australia. Or a shallot if you're in (laughs) Australia. Uh, Peel a sprig of rosemary, chop all that up, and saute in a a quarter of a cup of olive oil in a pan. Hmm. You want to get all that good and happy and golden brown on a low or medium-low heat. Oh, yeah. And then after they've tenderized and the garlic is no longer sharp and all of that, you add Mm -hmm. two cups of low-sodium chicken stock and bring it right up to a boil. Right. Now you're going to simmer that until the stock is almost completely reduced so it gets nice and thick and you've got this concentrated flavor. Now you add a tablespoon of butter or four. (laughs) Tablespoons of butter, actually. (laughs) Yep. And about a tablespoon of onion powder. And just uh, stir it all together until the uh, butter is melted and then transfer that to a food processor and turn it on whiz, which I think is the only option you have in a food (laughs) processor. Just on. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And whilst processing, add one cup of heavy cream. So, optionally, if you want to thicken it up, you can sprinkle a half a teaspoon of xanthan gum over that. Sure. And I actually got the xanthan gum that comes in a little shaker now because ah. it's so hard to uh, to get it not to clump when you're just, you know, using a yeah. spoon. Yeah. So, now you want to salt and pepper to taste. So, th- mm-hmm. that's the reason why I don't use... Um, salted or standard chicken stock or bouillon. I use the low-sodium chicken stock because I want to add the salt at the end just so that you can nail it. Dial it in, yeah. Dial it in. And as it turns out, I use a lot of salt. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not surprised after the last podcast. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, I want it really Mm. salty and rich and creamy and buttery and all of that. So uh, then you just you know spoon it out if you want to uh, put it in a pan and heat it up a little bit before you serve it. That's really good. Sprinkle some uh, herbs on top and enjoy. Nice. Yeah, mushrooms are like
1: tomatoes and chicken; they all love salt. Yeah, they sure do. So that's my that's my recipe. What do you got? Um, My recipe is what I ate last night, uh, which is a cauliflower soup. Ooh! And the way that yeah, the way that I made this it. I had some whey left over from Julie making some triple cream brie. Now, normally I wouldn't eat whey. I'd give it to my dogs, but, yeah, we don't have any dogs right now. So Mm. it was been sitting in my fridge for a couple of days, and I thought to myself, I need to find something to do with that. Now, you Hmm. probably remember when I did my brown chicken stock, I would get chicken, and uh, chicken wings in particular, and I would sprinkle some milk powder over the top of them and then put them in the oven. And that milk powder, what the milk powder does is it, it, it basically adds some lactose the milk sugars to combine with the um the proteins in the surface of the skin which causes the maillard reaction to right. occur which is basically caramelization so it causes chicken to go very caramelized in the oven well cauliflower has not a lot of protein in but it has some plant sugars in it yeah so what we're going to do is add to the cauliflower some protein, and that's basically the other side of that reaction. We're oh. basically adding protein to a starch, and that's causing it to uh, um, have the Maillard reaction again. So um, what I did was I chopped two heads of cauliflower into small florets and I soaked them in the whey for... About twenty four hours. You could use milk as well. It it, it really doesn't matter. But um, okay. you want to soak it in something that has some protein. It could be chicken stock. You could soak them in chicken stock as well. Wow! And then you put them on a a, a tray and you put them in an oven. And in fact, I put mine in, in my hot smoker. So I ended mm. up getting smoked cauliflower, which is e- wow. adds even more flavor to it. It was delicious. So what this does is it it that, that uh, adding a little bit of. Uh, uh, Milk or stock or whey to the cauliflower causes it to brown up very quickly in, in, in the, in the oven when it's roasted. So as soon as it's brown, I take out these two heads of cauliflower, um, and I put them into an instant pot and I then cover them with, uh, a, a, enough liquid from chicken stock or, um, I add a little bit of whey. You can add a little bit of the milk that you used as a, as the marinating liquid. Yeah. And I gave it basically 20 minutes in the pressure cooker. Yeah. And uh, at the end of that, I ended up with cooked cauliflower liquid. And then I just got a a wand in and blended it up until it was all very fine. And here's here's one trick. This made several litres of of liquid, which I wasn't going to be able to use all at once. So what I did was I froze it in some silicone... Uh, uh, ice cream molds, which are basically about a cup in size. And so I was able to freeze them all and then reconstitute them later. So Mm. I have this frozen cauliflower uh, liquid. I put it in a magic bullet and uh, put that in the microwave for a minute. It uh, defrosts it. I add to that two tablespoons of butter. This is for one person serving. Put it back in the microwave for another 30 seconds and then whisk it, and what I end up with is a creamy cauliflower soup. And uh, how I served this was, and this is, I learned this actually when I was in Sydney uh, from uh, an Italian restaurant that we went to, what they did was they served cauliflower soup with uh, some blue cheese, a piece of blue cheese in the bottom of the soup. Oh, and nice! This is a hot so soup. by the time you, so get you get to the bottom, it gets that real rich, yeah, kind melting. of thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I had I had some washed rind um, triple cream uh, brie, and uh, I put that a little little wedge of that on the bottom of the plate tossed my cauliflower soup on top of it, and I think I had uh, sliced chorizo. I I fried up some chorizo and uh, just sprinkled those over the top for some little meaty croutons. So that was my meal tonight. (laughs) Yeah, and I put a photo of it up on uh, ketogenic forums, yeah.
0: So it's interesting. I've never had a problem getting the miard reaction on either cauliflower or chicken wings in the oven when I coat them in olive oil and just cook them on... Uh, parchment for wings, or if I'm just, uh, in a cast iron pan, I, I do get the browning. Maybe it yeah. only happens, um, sporadically and it, m- with, with a little
1: protein, it might happen even more. Yeah. This will intensify the reaction. What you're trying to do is trying to get glycoproteins to, 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 to happen under heat. And That's so cool. you're trying to bond the proteins to the glue, the, the, uh, uh glucoses. And, uh, uh, yeah, it's, um, nice. Uh, it, yeah, it's, it's delicious.
0: <laughs> I'm going to have to try that. You'll have to make that when you come for KetoFest.
1: I think I might have to. Awesome. Well, that's a show, my friends. Of course, if you have anything that you want to tell us, something we said wrong or something you don't agree with, some more research that you've found to support or maybe even refute, anything that we've said, then send it by email to dudes at 2ketodudes.com or post it on their website or send it to us on the ketogenic forums. And while you're at mm-hmm. it, well, come and register for KetoFest at ketofest.com. Yep, and you can follow us on Twitter at 2KetoDudes,
0: on Instagram Mm -hmm. at 2KetoDudes, and make sure to use the hashtag number 2KetoDudes. And of course, if you want to join our forum, it's forum.2keto.com, and if useless swag is your fancy, you know, t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other junk with witty keto sayings on it, Mm -hmm. head over to gear.2keto.com. And join the Two Keto Dudes fan club. Yep. You'll be eligible to win something in every show, and that's at fanclub.twoketo.com.
1: And if you feel like supporting our podcast and our forums, hit the Donate button on our website at www.twoketodudes.com or just go to donate.twoketo.com. You can also see our podcast and other videos on YouTube at youtube.twoketo.com. And if you haven't already, go leave us a review on iTunes. Two Keto Dudes is engineered by Brandon Wen for Pwop Studios
0: and produced by Carl Franklin. That's me. Pwop Studios started in 1999 as a full-service audio and video production facility with podcast production experience since 2002. Online at pwop.com. So, Carl, where did you get the name Pwop from? Pwop is the sound of a forehead slap. <laughs> it's usually accompanied by his brother. Don't! Don't!
1: All right, buddy, keep calm and keto on. Yeah, keep calm and keto on, mate.
0: All right, we'll see you next time on on Two keto Keto Dudes.